Welcome to Tom Rhodes Radio Smart Camp. Hey everybody, uh, today's episode is brought to you by simplecontacts.com. I wear contact lenses. It's a pain, it's expensive. When you need to get a new test, when you need to get a new batch of contact lenses by the box, I usually buy them uh, a year's supply at a time because I don't want to deal with it. But now, thanks to simplecontacts.com, you can renew your prescription and reorder your contacts. Only takes a couple minutes, and you don't even need to go to a doctor's office. Uh, they've got their own uh, vision test that you can take. The vision test is only $20. You compare that to an appointment, that's over $200. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a good deal any way you slice it. You don't have to, you can use your own prescription. Uh, you can, and with this special offer for Tom Rhodes Radio Smart Camp listeners, you can get $30 off of your order. So all you have to do is go to simplecontacts.com forward slash TRR and or enter TRR at checkout and you'll get $30 off your order for contact lenses. You'll save time, you'll save money, and you'll save yourself a headache with simplecontacts.com. So uh, it's a pretty good deal, man. Any way you slice it, uh, you get the vision test. They've got doctors. Uh, you can do it online. Uh, the vision test, 20 bucks. And with this special offer from my listeners, you can get $30 off. All you have to do is go to simplecontacts.com forward slash TRR and or enter TRR at checkout and uh, boom, you're done. You got contacts. You're good for a year if you order them like I do. Uh, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye exam, but you can get the eye exam uh, on the internet. Uh, they only test your current prescription just to make sure that you're, you can still see 2020 and you can renew your prescription and uh it's pretty gosh darn easy. So uh, I used it myself. I got uh, money off. And God bless simplecontacts.com for sponsoring today's episode. Okay, today's episode is uh, Biography Roulette. I've got this big wall of books, and I'm going to be plucking biographies off. I mean, I'm, I've already plucked a bunch of them off, and they're sitting here at the table. Uh, and I'm going to read you from all these different biographies. But before we start, I just want to say uh, last week's episode, uh, when I talked about the movie Solo, the new Star Wars movie, uh, I, like an asshole, kept calling Donald Glover Danny Glover. And uh, a few people sent me messages and uh, pointed that out to me, and I was well aware of it after I posted it. So, oops, sorry about that, uh, Donald Glover, for calling him Danny Glover. And by the way, he was on uh, Saturday Night Live last weekend, even though it was a repeat. And uh, uh, just to recap, I was not crazy about the movie Solo, uh, and I, I figured it out. The thing I forgot to mention on the last episode, I think the reason I didn't like it was because I wanted the woman to hook up with Donald Glover and not the dorky Han Solo guy. But then I guess the movie would have been called Lando for Lando Calrissian instead of Han Solo. Anyway, that's 
lingering thoughts on last week's episode. So uh, a lot of things happened in America this week. NFL players are not allowed to kneel during the national anthem. Uh, Bakers in Colorado don't have to bake cakes for gay people if they don't want to. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting time to be alive in America. And, uh, you know, we can all learn from people's lives. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of biographies. And uh, let's just, uh, let, let's roll our sleeves up and get right into this one. Um, I got some good stuff to read you today. I'm going to start with, for the biography roulette episode, Steve Jones. He was the guitar player in the Sex Pistols. Um, I actually got to meet this guy when I was opening for John Cooper Clark last month. John Cooper Clark did Jones's Jukebox uh, on KLOS, the local rock station. And uh, it was pretty funny. He thought I was an agent because I had a suit on. And then he kept saying, who's, who's this guy you're with? He's an agent, isn't he? It was before we went on air. And John Cooper Clark said, it's okay, Steve. He's a citizen above suspicion. Uh, and we're all rowing in the same direction. And then I got to talk to him. Uh, Steve Jones liked the sound of my voice. And uh, at the end of John Cooper Clark's interview, he said, I want to hear you speak. I want to hear you speak some words. So I got to tell Steve Jones the story of uh, my high school sweetheart, Marla Coleman. Her father was really cool, and he had a massive vinyl record collection. And, uh, and, and, and you know, I, I lost my virginity with this woman. I really loved her family. I'm still very close with her mom and dad. And um, they come and see me whenever I'm in Orlando. These people had a huge impact on me. I think one of the reasons I was so heartbroken uh, when this girl broke up with me in high school was I was afraid of losing her parents also. Silly, but, you know, when you're young and you got your whole life ahead of you, who knows who's going to be with you throughout your journey in life. But um, so I got to, so, so I was really into the who, when I was in high school and Marla's dad, Steve Coleman said, uh, those guys are a bunch of cream puffs. Give this a listen. And he put on the sex pistols, never mind the bullocks and pop my brain exploded. Uh, it was a transformative moment in my life and I've loved the sex pistols ever since the filth and the fury is one of my favorite films of all time. So when Steve Jones asked me to speak some words, I got to tell him this story about uh, Steve Coleman turning me on to the Sex Pistols. And it was funny. He said, the who aren't cream puffs. And I said, hey, I understand. Just relaying the story the way it happened to me. So uh, it was a thrill to meet Steve Jones. Uh, if you've never heard Jones's Jukebox, they put them online Uh on YouTube, you can see, you know, they film it. They've got cameras. And um, Val Kilmer, I think, was just on there. Um, and not looking too well. I think he's got throat cancer or something, which is a pity. Ashna and I saw Val Kilmer do uh, a Mark Twain performance about five years ago, a one-man show. 
And we were hoping to see that as a movie. So, um, anyway, this is from Steve Jones's book, Lonely Boy. And uh, let's get right into it. Let's read some words. Okay, listeners. This is page 147 from Lonely Boy by Steve Jones. There was also a period when I was knocking about in Ladbrook Grove with this bird with big tits. Uh, bird is um, the English unsensitive way of referring to a woman for the non-Brits who are listening. Anyway, there was a period when I was knocking about in Ladbrook Grove with this bird with big tits. Not the one who used to get on stage with Hawking. Hawkwind, a different biker groupie chick I had a little thing with. She was a proper greaser, and we'd buy stuff off Lemmy and lurk in those boozers down Portobello Road where the Pink Fairies and Hawkwind and all the people that became Motorhead used to hang out. That's a part of West London a lot of people associate with good times, but I never really liked it. Although while... We're in Notting Hill. I should probably mention my uncredited cameo appearance in a film which was shot there around that time. It's a British gangster flick called The Squeeze, which has Stacy Keach and the comedian Freddie Starr in it. At, and at one point early on, you can see me walking through Portobello Market wearing a Hawaiian shirt. The West Coast A&R man's look, only appearance on celluloid. Cookie saw it by chance on late night TV once and nearly fell off his fucking sofa. Anyway, I digress. This bird I was shagging. Shagging is the British unsensitive way of saying fornication. So this bird I was shagging lived in a squat in Ladbrook Grove with all these biker dudes. When I'd go around there, I remember thinking, fuck this shit. This is not my cup of tea at all. Obviously... The whole squatting lifestyle would become very associated with punk later on. But it wasn't my scene in any way. It was dirty. The houses were always shitholes. And I found the squalor of it really depressing. I need my surroundings to be a certain way. I like to be tidy. And I like nice things. I don't want to be sleeping in a place where you don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. Even the fact that it was illegal wasn't for me. I suppose if you're as prolific a lawbreaker as I am, you don't want your home to be another possible entry on your ever-expanding rap sheet. I know that technically what I was doing in Denmark Street was squatting, but you wouldn't have known that to look at the place. I'm very organized and clean by nature. I guess it's the mod in me. As well as my first proper home as an adult, Denmark Street gave me something else I needed, which was somewhere to practice the guitar. When you've got nowhere to kip apart from your mate's sofas, opportunities to bone up on your bar chords are few and far between. Plugging in your Gibson Les Paul and playing along to the Stooges' funhouse doesn't tend to go down too well with the mums and dads. Now I finally had a place of my own. I could hammer along to TVI and dirt to my heart's content and at any, vol any volume I wanted. The New York Dolls' first album was my other favorite for playing along to because it was simple and I could grasp it. It was the perfect thing to learn from. 
I would play the guitar by myself for literally hours upstairs at Denmark Street, just figuring out how it worked. If you're wondering how someone with full-on ADHD and the attention span of a fucking mosquito managed to concentrate for long enough to become Rolling Stone's 97th greatest rock and roll guitarist of all time, well, the answer is very simple. Speed. Not sulfate, but the diet pills you get on prescription from doctors. Some people call them black bombers. Others call them black beauties. But either way, you'd better get plenty of Mandrax to take afterwards if you ever want to get fucking sleep. Malcolm was a very big on wanting everyone to be skinny so the band would look the part. And I think that's how I persuaded him to hook me up. He'd send me down to a quack doctor on Harley Street to get them. 60 pills and 60 Mandrax each time. All the models and the people out of Who's Who went to this guy for their diet pills. He'd be in there writing prescriptions all day long. Once I turned up and the guy was so tired from all the bullshit scripts he was writing that he was actually nodding out at the counter. I think he got struck off in the end, but not before he'd given my guitar playing the chemical leg up it had been crying out for. Those black beauties weren't a drug you'd take just for a laugh. The level of focus they gave you was beyond anything normal. You'd hear stories of housewives that had done one too many being up all night washing dishes or cleaning their floors with a toothbrush, just completely obsessing over the tiniest little detail. I could relate as I approached learning the guitar in pretty much the same spirit. Don't get me wrong. I loved music and I had an ear for it. It wasn't just a mechanical thing, but I honestly don't think I could have become a professional musician if I hadn't had the pills to help me along. A lot of people get sober will tell you that drink and drugs did nothing but fuck up their lives. And they may, may be well right. But in my case, I don't think I'd have gotten anywhere without them. Some of the best things that have happened to me have been largely, if not entirely, down to drink and or drugs. That's why this shit's so hard to give up. Well, thank you, Steve Jones. Pardon me while I walk over to turn on the light switch. This is how far it is to turn on the light in my house. Okay, and we are back. Well, thanks, Steve Jones, for your uh, endorsement of narcotics. Okay, so this next book, uh, you know, I had heard about this book. There's a great, it's kind of expensive, but this bookstore on Sunset Boulevard um, called Book Soup. I went in there uh, actually with John Cooper Clark again. And... Uh, this was like last year, two years ago. Uh, I found this book and uh, enjoyed the living shit out of it. This book is called My Lunches with Orson. This is Conversations Between Henry Jaglum and Orson Welles. So apparently this Henry Jaglum guy, that's who put out the book. Uh, Orson Welles, they used to have lunch at this, uh, at this restaurant, this French restaurant, every day. Uh, this is like the 70s and 80s. And the guy would bring a tape recorder, and he asked Orson Welles if he could record their conversations. And they talked about everything, his show business history, everything he knew. And uh, Orson said no problem. He just didn't want to see uh, the microphone, the recorder. 
So this book is just all these conversations they had over lunch. And uh, it's pretty damn awesome. So here we go. Page 134 of My Lunches with Orson. I saw a very long interview with your friend Richard Pryor, interviewed by a not stupid but rather square and dull black man. Pryor had decided to open up and talk. He is very moving. I've always been very fond of him as a person without knowing him. I used to sit with Richard I used to sit with Richard Pryor every night at the Improv in New York when we were starting out. This is, oh, this is Henry Jaglum speaking. Oh, so Orson Welles said the first part. And so this is Henry Jaglum. I used to sit with Richard Pryor every night at the Improv in New York when we were starting out. And we had a game, which was that one of us had to make the other laugh. And you couldn't go to the bathroom, you couldn't go home, you couldn't do anything until the other person laughed. So I did something, and then it was his turn to do something. It was very funny, but I didn't laugh. An hour went by, a second hour. By then we had a crowd around us, a third hour, and he was doing everything he could think of. Richie is brilliant, but fuck it. I was refusing to even smile. There was a relish tray on each of the tables. He took the mustard, poured it on his head, he took the ketchup and splashed it on his face. It was a horrible mess. He had every possible color of condiment dripping from his face. Hysterically funny, but I was able to control myself until he took a napkin and with infinite delicacy dabbed the corner of his mouth, just like Charlie Chaplin. That got me. Five hours. He ran to the bathroom. He'd been waiting all that time to go, and I realized I would never be a stand-up comic. I've always been fascinated by the phrases that we all used that are so destructive, like, I killed them, Orson Welles. I murdered them, destroyed them. Now Orson Welles speaks. It shows the hostility of the comic. Comics are frightening people. Do you know the story about the comedian sitting around the table at Lindy's? They're all telling jokes. A fellow comes in very sad. He just sits there. He says... Well, I just finished three weeks at the Paramount, held over another week, and they booked me down in Philadelphia. I guess I shouldn't complain, but, you know, everything I earn goes to my poor kid, who's been in a wheelchair all his life. He has polio. There's a long silence. And then somebody said, that's good. Have you heard this one? Then... Henry Jaglum says, I remember in childhood, when I was really lonely and scared, I fell off chairs in school to get laughs. The harder I fell, and the more I hurt myself, the bigger the laugh. There's such a clear relationship between getting attention, getting that laughter, and hurting yourself. I used to be compelled by Jerry Lewis for that reason. And then Orson Welles says, he plays a spa spastic and he will die to make you laugh. He will do anything. Cut his head off if he needs to, you know? The speech to the players where Shakespeare has Hamlet say, Let not those that play your clowns speak no more than is set down for them. He must have had a big problem with some of his successful clowns. With his Jerry Lewises. Got on there in Macbeth 
as the porter and wouldn't get off, right in the middle of the murder. And then Henry Jaglum says, I remember seeing Milton Berle take a bow after bow after bow. He had the world at his feet, and then he came on for his last bow, and he blew his nose on the curtain. He just couldn't not do it, that's all. And he didn't even get a laugh. Wow. Well, there you go. My lunches with Orson. Hey, so I just wanted to use that to set up this next little ditty. Um, this is the biography of Richard Pryor. Um, Richard Pryor and the World That Made Him. The book is called Furious Cool by David Henry and Joe Henry. The Henry Brothers. Okay. This is from Furious Cool, page 76. One rumor, started by Richard himself, while joking with a reporter, had him running naked through the casino, leaping up onto one of the tables and waving his cock in the air while yelling, Blackjack! The most entertaining account, still current in some circles, has it that Richard whipped out his dick on stage and began pissing either on or in the general direction of a coterie of very special people, read high-powered mobsters, who were so incensed that their henchmen seized him on the spot and trundled him off to await a swift and certain execution. A sentence rescinded thanks to the appeals from a delegation of black entertainers led by Bill Cosby, who, as the story was related by novelist Claude Brown, gave the performance of his life, down on his knees, streaming crocodile tears. The boy is sick, Brown had Cosby plead. We'll look after him. I'll look after him. He won't do it again. That's a promise. The mobsters finally relented and delivered a shell-shocked Richard Pryor into Cosby's care. Richard, in his book, says the mobster incident never happened. His agent and the Aladdin's management, however, did give him a thorough dressing down. He would never work in that town again, they told him, and he never did. Two months later, though, he was back on Ed Sullivan. Richard would forever after describe his Aladdin meltdown as his personal and professional epiphany, marking the B.C., dash ad divide in his life although the transition was in no way so decisive or abrupt he'd long been keeping it real doing real life material in friendlier venues yet more than a year after the aladdin incident according to mooney his transformation was nowhere near complete he continued channeling cosby was still unhappy with himself he still did not know who or what exactly he wanted to be. All he knew was that he had to get over, to keep pushing ahead till he found what felt right. What this meltdown on stage at the Aladdin did was cut off any means or easy retreat. The Vegas walk-off wasn't entirely driven by artistic angst. The storms were raging all around him. Maxine had filed suit for child support claiming that they had lived together as husband and wife, a characterization Richard neither could nor would deny. He had often introduced Maxine as his wife and addressed her as such in letters. She had legally taken his name and would keep it for the rest of her life. 
Following his breakup with Maxine, Richard moved into a $100 a month room in the notorious Sunset Tower Motel. Coming in late one night, he got into an altercation with the late night shift desk clerk. Richard claimed he had no recollection or of ever striking the man, but the police report said he punched him in the face and broke his glasses. The clerk successfully sued him for $75,000. Richard at that point said, fuck it. He tried to make himself invisible, at least as far as the system was concerned. He threw away his driver's license and stopped carrying any type of ID. He closed his bank account, stopped cashing paychecks. There was perhaps apocryphal, apocryphal story of a friend who started leafing through a book in his apartment and found a month's old check for $80,000 that Richard was apparently using as a bookmark. Stopped paying parking tickets or income tax. Richard's appearance on Ed Sullivan and Merv Griffin, his run in Vegas, <clears throat> and his movie with Sid Caesar all put him in a cast above all the other climbers he mingled with at bungalow parties around L.A. It was at one such gathering on Sunset Boulevard that Richard walked up to the drop-dead gorgeous model Carol LaBrea and said to the guy she was with, let's all take off our clothes and have an orgy. Those were the first words Richard ever spoke to Paul Mooney. Let's go. Let's do it, man. Look at these ladies. Let's all get in bed and have a freak thing. Mooney's attention had been drawn to Richard from the moment he and his date walked in the door. Right away, I sense he is different, Mooney writes. He is smiling and laughing. Everything pleases him. He knows there are lots of women and drugs around, and that fills him with childish delight like a kid in a candy store. And right away, the first thing out of his mouth, he says he wants to go to bed with me. Richard's date worked for ex-football star Jim Brown and did some moonlighting on Sunset Strip dancing in cages at Whiskey A Go-Go. So did Carol LaBrea. Maybe that's where Richard had seen her before. He knew her from somewhere. What he didn't know was she was Mooney's half-sister. Despite the questionable first impression, Mooney would become Richard's most trusted lifelong friend, champion, and collaborator. Wow. Okay, one more little section on Paul Mooney. Mooney found it impossible to be angry with Richard. He was so ob obviously without guile. He just has no inhibitions, no other considerations, figure into his actions, nothing else other than I want it. For everybody else in the world, an attitude such as this would come off as totally insufferable. But Richard makes it work because he's completely open and vulnerable. Sure, he's selfish, but he's selfish with the innocence of a four-year-old. He makes me feel protective toward him. The first time they went to a party together, Mooney seized up the room filled with dope smoke, the cocaine laid out on the table, and told Richard he was cutting out. He'd been to enough parties like this to know that he hated them. Sometimes it seems like everybody in L.A. is high but me, he writes. Richard was flabbergasted to learn that Mooney didn't do drugs. He didn't drink, at least not the way Richard drank. He persuaded Mooney to stay. They could just hang out and talk, and Richard would take Mooney's share of the drugs being passed around. I get Mooney's share, 
became Richard's cheerful refrain whenever they were out together and someone broke out the powder. Remembering how often he heard that phrase, Mooney reckons that he single-handedly doubled Richard's drug intake. Well, that's pretty charming. Okay, which book do we pull from next, ladies and gentlemen? Um, Yeah, what the hell? Let's go with James Brown. Uh, This is, I read this book years ago. You know, you probably heard me tell the story, you know, when I started out on the Southern Circuits, um, doing these shitty one-nighters around the South. Richard Pryor um, was in prison in Augusta, Georgia, and the guy's my all-time hero. I've got, I had the Richard Pryor's 30 Solid Gold Hits cassette I listened to over and over. And I had read this book. This is James Brown's autobiography. It came out in 1986. It's called James Brown, The Godfather of Soul, an autobiography by James Brown. And this is one of the reasons why James Brown meant so much to me. And I... I had done this shitty one-nighter in Augusta, drove my car out to the edge of the prison, sat on the hood smoking cigarettes with James Brown's Greatest Hits cassette blasting on my radio, and I sat on the hood of my car smoking and looking at that prison where they were keeping James Brown, and I kept thinking to myself, uh, they got this genius caged up like an animal right there. You know, one of the reasons that he meant so much to me I mean, other than his music is explosive and he's the most inspiring entertainer uh, who ever lived. Um, but this book and knowing James Brown's story and all he overcame, he, the guy, music saved him. Music was his life. He put music above everything. You know, he was in, a, in like a, a child's, uh, like a, a young men's reformatory, like a youth prison. And the fact that he was singing all the time and dancing, um, the the warden let him out early. The guy, his whole life was was changed because of his music ability. So the, I've I've often I've often thought this, and I found the page. Uh, Elvis Presley was the first dead person that James Brown ever saw, and I got that from this book. So this is from page two forty seven of James Brown's autobiography, The Godfather of Soul. When Elvis died in August 1977, I think I got a clue. For some reason, his death hit me very hard. We were a lot alike in many ways. Both poor boys from the country raised on gospel and R&B. Hound Dog and Please both came out the same year. He had lived in Hollywood for a long time. And then, like me, had moved back home to try to preserve himself. Somehow or another, he just didn't manage to do it. It kept him shut away all the time. He couldn't get out and be with the people. I knew he was a poor boy and never intended to go that way. When you're poor, you have to survive in your mind. When he died, I said, that's my friend. I have to go. I went to Graceland that night. The crowds had already started gathering around the gate. Some agents from the Tennessee Bureau of Identification put me in one of their cars and got me in without anybody seeing. I saw Priscilla and his daughter, and I saw one of his aides 
who'd been a good friend of mine for 16 years. I talked to Elvis's father, saying what I could to help console him. But when I walked over to the open casket, I needed consoling. I put my hand over his heart and said with tears in my eyes, You rat, why'd you leave me? How could you let it go? How could you let it go? It was very strange. That was only the second time in my life I'd ever touched someone who was dead. I'm sorry, it was the second time in his life he had touched someone who was dead. All right, I misremembered. It's been over 20 years since I read this book. It made me think about the waste of such a great, great talent. And it made me wonder what I was doing with my own life about everything that was going wrong. During that time, I couldn't find any way out of it. Like Elvis, couldn't find any way out of it except dying. I knew things were going to get worse, too, when one day I found a book lying around the house. It was a book about women's legal rights. My wife was reading it. She'd underlined the parts about community, property, and divorce. I knew then she was planning to leave. I knew it in my mind, but in my heart, I hoped it wouldn't happen. I was working somewhere. I don't even remember where. And I left early to be with my family on Valentine's Day. I wanted to have a candlelight dinner and then a long walk about us to see if we could work it out. When I came up the drive, she had already had the station wagon packed and the two girls inside ready to leave. I talked to her. I argued with her, but it didn't do any good. She left and took the girls with her. I watched them go down the drive until they were out of sight at the bottom of the hill, heading toward the front gate. I stood there in the middle of all that land, by myself, just listening to that car fade away. She was a very good woman, and we had a lot of good years together. But she did not want a man who was in the entertainment business. She might say there was some other reason that we broke up, but I believe that my being an entertainer was the real reason. If I had been a man who came home every night, she would have been much happier. I gave up a lot to be with them, but she had no aspiration for my being in show business at all. But that's what James Brown is all about. After she left, I tried not to let it get me down. You must be intelligent about it first. When a person leaves you, the person has just expressed something to you. Understand that before you understand anything else. The person would never leave you without wanting to. That's hard to accept. She did what she wanted to do. She went where she wanted to go. Some hardcore shit, man. All right. So, moving onwards. Uh, what do we have on the table? <clears throat> All right. Should we go from James Brown to Marlon Brando? This book <clears throat> is called Brando. This is the unauthorized biography by Charles Hyam. Anthony Quinn said, and if you remember Anthony Quinn, um, well, fuck it. Just, I'll read. <clears throat> this is page 120 from Brando. Anthony Quinn said, Marlon was a very peculiar young man, an original young man. He never seemed to want to talk to me, to have a normal conversation. It was always a pretend conversation. 
Quinn added that Marlin would get into the car to go to the location and would say, How far are you going, mister? He was pretending to be a hitchhiker and making believe that Quinn was a driver picking him up on the road. On other days, he would assume different parts. Kazan wanted the two men to spend a lot of time together, to become close because they were acting brothers. This, Kazan felt, would give their scenes together a deeper warmth and intimacy. However, Quinn said, I didn't feel totally comfortable with Marlon. Our egos just didn't jibe. Finally, one day, we were standing away from the camera and Kazan insisted we talk. We couldn't think of what to talk about. We just looked at each other. Suddenly, Marlon said, How about going over by the cactuses? I said, No. But then I did walk over with him, and he began pissing and suggested I join him. At least we can relieve ourselves together, he said. Gene Peters recalls a curious episode in Texas. One night, Marlon climbed up to my window and serenaded me. He played his recorder. I didn't hear him. I was asleep. Next day, he asked if I had heard him. I told him I hadn't. He said I nearly broke my neck. According to Miss Peters, Marlon and Kazan constantly changed the script, coming up with all kinds of new business. He enjoyed, she enjoyed Marlon's humor, his playfulness. Sometimes while they were waiting to start a scene, he would write a line of verse and she would write another until they had composed a complete poem. She hated Roma, where many scenes were shot. They would drive out there from McAllen every morning in station wagons in temperatures of 105 degrees from their non-air-conditioned hotels along dusty roads for as much as two hours at a stretch. The trip was made even more bearable by the heavy and stifling... The trip was made even more unbearable by the heavy and stifling period clothes. All right, which fucking movie is this? Ba-da-da-dee-ha. Back in Los Angeles, shooting at 20th Century Fox Ranch in Calabasas, Peters and Marlon got to know each other better. But there was no question of a romance. Marlon had already met and become deeply attracted to a gorgeous 33-year-old Mexican extra in the movie, Movita Castaneda, who had played Tahitian girls in the 1935 film version of Mutiny on the Bounty and in The Hurricane. Warm, intense Movita engaged him on a deeper emotional level than any other, any other woman with whom he was still involved. Miss Peters recalls that Russell, the raccoon, was present during the shooting. She said Marlon had him on a chain and would play with him as though he were a dog. I was driving Marlon to 20th Century Fox from the ranch in my brand new convertible when all of a sudden Russell got loose and bit me in the rib cage. I swerved the car. I was scared. It was a terribly hot day, and I was dying to get home. Marlon asked me if I could stop at a drive-in cafe. I remember saying, How can you eat in all this heat? Marlon replied, It's not for me. It's for Russell. He's hungry. We got to the drive-in, and Russell had a milkshake, holding it in his little paws and lapping it up. He didn't do it too well, and he spilled the milkshake all over my new car. I wasn't pleased. Although Marlon's friend, cameraman Sam Shaw, took pictures showing Jean playing with the beast, her feelings about Russell never changed. 
He loved my straw bag, she said. He would stick his paw in it and pull everything out. Comb, a brush, a hair or lipstick. She was glad to see the last of Russell. She remembered that, whereas Marlon breezed comfortably through even the most difficult scenes, he could do the alphabet and make it work. She was irritated by many of the lines, and in particular, the scene in which Zapata proposed to her. Okay, this is the, the biopic he did on Zapata, which is supposed to be a terrible film. It was very stylized, she said. The words were hard to say and hard to feel you were doing naturally. But she added, Marlon kind of set me back on my heels because he was so believable. He had the fire and excitement. She added, Marlon would give a scene full blast even if he was off camera and I was in close-up. He'd never let down, as many actors do sometimes out of exhaustion or fatigue. And he would often amuse me, help to relax me. Once he spilled something and said, don't be such a slob, with a laugh, of course. He replied, I am not a slob. He spoke in the elegant accent of a duke or a prince, and he was so precise and prissy. He added, I can be the most perfect gentleman you've ever seen. And he did the perfect imitation of how a perfect gentleman would sip his coffee. It was magnificent. Okay, then. Well, that wasn't exciting. So Marlon Brando had a pet raccoon when he was making Zapata. Okay, so um, from one actor to the next. This is Steve McQueen, Portrait of an American Rebel by Marshall Terrell. I read this book years ago, and then Steve McQueen's doing so much cocaine, and he hit his wife and shit like that, that um, uh, the book kind of bummed me out. I, I wish I didn't know so much about the man, was what I felt after I read this book. So I'm going to just read you one page, maybe two. Okay, this is Steve McQueen, Portrait of an American Rebel, page 67. One person McQueen didn't make happy was neighbor Edmund George. Sometimes George complained to local police about McQueen's wild driving. In addition, George complained to police that McQueen's dog, Mike, had been running loose. Steve decided that the two of them should shake hands and start over. The incident made the papers, and each man had his own version to tell. McQueen stated, I went over there to tell him... We should be friends and ask him to stop calling the police about me. I even took my little girl along and was carrying her in my arms. George and his wife began screaming and calling me a coward. George yelled, get off my land, and rushed at me, hitting me in the chest. I dropped my daughter. George's version was somewhat, somewhat different. He came over looking for a fight. He dared me to come out in the street, and then he hit me. He said, I came here to make friends, but if you want trouble, I'll give you trouble. I asked if that was a threat or a promise. He said that it was a threat. Each party signed a battery complaint against the other, but no arrests were made and the fracas never went to court. A writer who knew Steve on a personal level wrote to Steve, life is black and white. He believes in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and will fight for his friends with the same vigor as he does for himself. 
Do these look like the hands of an actor? Steve would proudly show them to anyone who cared to look. To Steve, racing had dignity, and he wasn't sure that acting could compare. But he did compare the two worlds to a reporter. Each field takes total concentration to become successful. In order to be proficient in racing, you must eat, sleep, and think about it all the time. You must devote every minute practicing to keep a winning edge at peak. Friend and fellow motorcyclist, Bud Ekins observed, he got interested in dirt bike riding and he had me build him a bike. So I built him one. We went racing together. He would have been put into the expert class except that he would go off and make a film and that would keep him down to the amateur rating. Steve was competitive with anyone, be it lagging coins or playing hopscotch or what have you. Fellow actor Don Gordon firmly believed that McQueen's that McQueen raced because it was him in a car against somebody else in a car. He wanted to see what kind of a human being he was, what kind of a person he was, what kind of a man he was. He was on the edge. He was always on the edge. How far could you go? It was machines. It was mechanics who could make it purr and hum. It was a purest kind of thing. Steve's son, Chad, noticed with his old motorcycles and his motorcycle buddies, he could be himself. Nobody could give a damn if he was a movie star. He was just one of the boys. Motorcycles, cars, and speed would forever be linked with Steve McQueen. Well, as Elkins recalls, it was quite an experience. My job was to keep the two from killing each other, either with fisticuffs, verbal, act, verbal attacks, or fucking. It was a choice, depending on the moods of the two kids. What? All right, <clears throat> I got to... Can't just leave you hanging with that. All right, I'll read this because that was just this uh, underlined highlight that just popped out at me. So I'll read you the paragraph leading up to that. With four-star studios and wanted, dead or alive, out of his hair, McQueen set out to make himself a movie star. Steve was under a non-exclusive contract to MGM when the studio offered, after Cary Grant had turned it down, the Golden Fleecing. The plot was about a Navy lieutenant, lieutenant who schemes to use the ship's electronic computer to break the roulette table at a Venice casino, later retitled The Honeymoon Machine. It was McQueen's first starring role at a major Hollywood studio. Manager Hilly Elkins was given the task of babysitting Steve's co-star, actress Brigid Baslin, the daughter of Chicago Sun-Times writer Maggie Daly. Baslin, then only 21, was a pretty, if not moody, match for McQueen. Daly called Elkins and asked him to watch over her daughter during filming. As Elkins recalls, it was quite an experience. My job was to keep the two of them from killing each other, either with fisticuffs, verbal attacks, or fucking. It was a choice, depending on the moods of the two kids. Okay, so that is that. Um, okay. Got so many choices laid out on the table. 
Okay, so <clears throat> let's move. Uh, I'll, I'll read you one more actor biography. Uh, this is a this is a book. I you know I uh, I actually have a story about this book. Um, this is Errol Flynn. This is his autobiography, and the book is called My Wicked Wicked Ways. And the story when I was living in Amsterdam, I was flying back and forth to London all the time. And, uh, you know, London was my bread and butter. And I'm, I, I was reading this book at the time. And I got on the plane and I'm sitting in my chair and I'm reading. And this really kind of short, small, wimpy flight attendant, uh, he sees my book and he goes, Oh, I, I see you're reading Errol Flynn's My Wicked, Wicked Ways. I've always wanted to read that book. You know, my friends have always said I remind them of of Errol Flynn. And I went, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, whatever. And uh, I mean, I was friendly, but I went back to reading. This was before September 11th, 2001. So this is sometime in the year 2000. <clears throat> and uh, it was a cocktail party in the sky, especially flying back from Amsterdam to London, because a lot of British people go to Amsterdam just to wipe their dick on the curtains, as I've always liked to say. So the plane is landing is is descending into Heathrow Airport and about four rows in front of me, I see wimpy little flight attendant guy. He's yelling at some passenger. Some big burly mountain of a man has got a bottle of vodka in his hand and he's saying you have to put the bottle of vodka in the overhead compartment because it's luggage. And then the little guy and the dude's drunk, like a soccer football hooligan type guy, the little flight attendant guy tries to grab the bottle from him and the guy goes, hey, God damn it. And he stands up and then the little flight attendant guy goes, someone help me. And then people jumped up. They held this, put this guy back in his seat. He was drunk. He could have been violent. But it was the first time in my life I had ever seen um, restraints. I didn't know there were, <clears throat> there were like um, seat belt buckles uh, to tie this guy into his chair. And then the pilot, he didn't know what's happening. Uh, he aborts the landing and then the plane shoots straight up. And if you can imagine the amount of air traffic around Heathrow Airport in London, um, uh, it was a pretty frightening moment. And then we, we, we level up and then we circle around for like an hour and this drunk guy's tied to his chair. And then uh, the pilot explains on the intercom that when we get to the gate, everyone stay seated so the authorities can come on and remove this disturbing individual. So the plane, finally we land and we get to the gate. Everyone stays seated. And before the cops can come on to the plane and arrest the guy, the little flight attendant is standing. And the guy's like kind of passed out at this point. The little flight attendant guy is standing over him and he's, he's taunting him going, Are you happy now, sir? You're going to jail now, sir. Are you happy now, sir? It was like one of the most wimpy, cowardly things I've ever seen. So the cops take the guy off. Everyone gets off. <clears throat> and then uh, as I'm leaving the plane, little wimpy flight attendant guy is sitting by the door. And as I am exiting the plane, I just pointed at him with a wink. And I said, hey, way to go, Errol Flynn. Because that's what Errol Flynn would have done. He would have taunted the guy and said, uh, 
Are you happy now, sir? Okay. <clears throat> this is page two. This is a pretty damn good read. Ralph Flynn was a wild man. And uh, his early days in New Guinea and Australia, he was Australian, so handsome. And, and then he became an opium addict. And then he just, um, he bought a boat and sailed around the Caribbean for years. Really interesting guy. So this is page 236 <clears throat> from My Wicked, Wicked Ways by Earl Flynn. He was tall, with blonde hair, thin, aquiline, rather hawk nose. He had a hard-set mouth and chin, and a pair of piercing blue eyes. They called him Tiger, a term that, I think, stemmed from the compelling effect of his eyes. His family was from Victoria. They were ranchers. I didn't see Freddie while I first made pictures, and not throughout my six-year-long relationship with Lily. But soon after Mulholland was built, he returned from Europe, having been pursued there by a fabulously wealthy Standard Oil heiress. I invited him to stay with me. He was a little disconsolate at the time, having had difficulties of a romantic sort. Freddie held the fort all day while I worked at the studio. He brought along with him Alexander, an ex-Russian royalist, manservant, who has nuts about who was nuts about betting on horses? Alexander was given charge of Mulholland. Strange people wended their way up the hill to Mulholland. Among them, pimps, sports, bums, down at the heels actors, gamblers, athletes, sightseers, process servers, phonies, queers, salesmen, everything in the world, all kinds and all types as the Lord, or nature, composed them. The famous and the infamous, stars, bit players, stuntmen, and artists, they came by day and by night, <clears throat> invited and uninvited. The path became so well-trodden <clears throat> that there were so many people hanging about some days that at times I had trouble getting into the house myself. I had to go around the back way because the crowd in front would have held me up. Of course, there were pretty girls. The more, the merrier. Pals like Freddie McEn Mc 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 McAvoy, Bud Ernst, Johnny Myers, and Bruce Cabot brought them up. I always liked men about me. Roisterers, fun guys, romperers. It went back to my New Guinea days, my times in Australia when I roved with a gang, or always had some guy to pal out with, to look over the girls, drop it in a saloon, or even just go for a swim. For some kinds of fun, the friendship that the two men can have, or a gang of fellows can have, simply can't be beat. It is a different feeling from what you get from being with a woman, and no woman can replace the gambling, sporting, handicapping air that men together can establish. One night I returned to Mulholland to find the place more or less peaceful. Nobody seemed to be there. I shouted for Alexander. There wasn't even any sign of him. When I went into the bedroom and saw the most adorable girl twins, one was blonde, the other brunette, I stared. In the vague light, it was like seeing double. What a pleasant intoxication. They were half giggling, half scared, and I wondered who in blazes they were, where they came from, how they got in. Alexander suddenly appeared from behind. 
Monsieur, you call? I turned on him with a fury. You're damned right. What are those two girls doing here sitting on the edge of my bed? Who let them in? Who are they? And what are you doing? What kind of a house do you think this is anyway? I looked at them again, and in all their twin beauty. I yelled as I sat on the edge of the bed. Now look, Alexander, if you know what's good for you, you don't want to be fired, you get one of them out of here. <laughs> Did I say I had Lily where I wanted her? Nah, fuck that part. About three o'clock one morning in Hollywood, during heavy downpour of rain, the bell sounded. The servants were asleep in their own apartment in another part of the house. I went downstairs and answered the door. A bedraggled figure was standing on my porch. I couldn't make out who. I waked a bit as recognition grew. Jacked! Well, said Barrymore, left eyebrow arched, aren't you going to ask me in for a drink? Sure, come in. Okay, well, I think we're nearing <clears throat> the end. Okay, let's um, have a little taste of an artist. This is The Shameful Life of Salvador Dali by Ian Gibson. <clears throat> this is page 276. And this is uh, <clears throat> about Gala. Salvador Dali's uh, The Love of His Life, basically. And Cadiquez is the little town in Spain where Salvador Dali is from. What happened in Cadiquez proved that Eduard's fears about Gala were all too justified. Since his adolescent friendship with Karma Roger, there is no evidence that Dali had had even the slightest fling with anyone of the other sex. By his own account, he lived in a state of permanent erotic deprivation, relieved only by masturbation. Having now met the woman of his fantasies, as sexually shameless as he was ashamed, he found himself in a terrible quandary. How could he possibly interest her? There is no way of corroborating the antics to which, according to The Secret Life, that's the book that Dolly wrote, he resorted maniacally in his endeavors to enamor the thrilling Russian, goat manure perfume, garish outfit, bloodied armpits, pearl necklace, red geranium behind the ear, outbursts of crazed laughter, Gala, that's the woman he loved, highly secretive about her private life, never told her side of the story. And Anna Maria Dali, Dali's books on her brother, contain no information whatsoever about the bizarre courtship. It is just possible that before arriving at Catechez, Gala was already curious about the painter. Eliuard kept telling me about his handsome Dali. I felt he was almost pushing me into his arms before I ever even saw him. It appears she once commented. On her side too, then, there were, there may have been, predisposition, at all events encouraged by Iliuard or not. She was soon flirting with the painter. Binuel, who had now arrived at Catechez, was staying at Is Ilan with Dali and his family. Saw it happen. Overnight, Dali changed beyond recognition, he recalls in his memoirs. The projected work on the script of their next film was suddenly impossible. All he did was talk about Gala, repeating everything she said, a total transformation. Brunuel later used the words transfigured 
unhinged, bewitched, to describe Dolly's slate state. For once, Dolly's account tallies with Brunuel's. Louis was terribly disappointed, for he had come to catechize with the idea of collaborating with me on the scenario for a new film, where I was more and more absorbed in nursing my personal madness and had thoughts only for this and for Gala. Okay, fuck it. Anyway, let's uh, <clears throat> move on. Okay, here we go. The last motherfucking books. Oh, shit. I thought I had uh, that ACDC book picked out. I guess I put it back. Uh, there was. I was flipping through the ACDC book, and uh, like in the old days... People would say, are you ACDC? Meaning like, are you gay? Are you straight? Uh, in in Australia, and people would ask Bon Scott that, and he, sa- he would say, I'm the flash in between. So that's where ACDC gets that flash in between. Okay, so, um, yeah, what do you want to hear? Lou Reed or Led Zeppelin? Fuck, we got Johnny Cash, we got Tom Waits. We're running out of time, people. Okay, well, here. Let's wrap it up. How about a little... Squeeze. We can't do both, the read and the Let's Happen. Of course we can. Okay, so this is Lou Reed. This is Transformer, the complete Lou Reed story by Victor Bacchus. I've got laundry in the machine. I have to uh, change. I am actually going to uh, Arizona tomorrow. Where am I going? I'm playing at a club called Stir Crazy. If you live in Arizona, it's in Glendale, Arizona. I'm there June 7th through the 9th. And uh, the club is called Stir Crazy. Brand new club. Anyway, I got to go put my clothes in the dryer. So, um... Probably sitting there. Okay, here we go. Lou Reed, Transformer, by Victor Bokras. In 1978, Lou made a move that signaled another form of return to his roots, buying a sizable property in the rural suburb of Blairstown, New Jersey. He used the place as a retreat from the city, where he and Sylvia kept still kept an apartment. In Blairstown, he could fish on a man-made lake, shoot hoops in his backyard, and maintain his latest diet of fresh fruit and nuts. The move led so-called friends to smirk that Lou was safely back in suburbia now, imitating that his adventurous exploration of cultural underground had now ended and that, in fact, he had never felt comfortable with the denizens of the Lower East Side, but retained the soul of a suburban son. John Cale's reaction was typical. We don't keep in touch. He's turned into a regular home bird, settled down on a nice farm out in Jersey. I don't see him. I don't even listen much to what he does. This sort of reaction made Lou's blood boil to such an extent that Sylvia soon took it upon herself to control which articles about him actually got through to Lou. Like so many men of distinction, he became increasingly isolated from the real world, surrounded, indulged, and most significantly informed by a 
Praetorian Guard of Enablers. The Blairstown property, soon some 18 wooded acres, approximately one and a half hours from New York by car, was beautifully situated, but the house itself was nothing more than a simple cabin dating back to the 1930s. Over the years, Lou and Sylvia would add several haphazard extensions, not ready to go completely back to nature. Lou installed a satellite dish and hooked up TVs and other electronic equipment, ranging from a jukebox and computer games to a pinball machine. Video equipment, amplifiers, and guitars were stashed everywhere. The master bedroom was cozy, and they had some big, comfortable couches in the living room. In the garage, Lou kept a collection of vehicles ranging from motorcycles to snowmobiles. To this cornucopia of country possessions, Lou added one item that irritated Sylvia more than any motorbike, video machine, or other adolescent apparatus Lou might need. As soon as he got to the country, the paranoid Lou purchased a gun in case of any unlooked-for interruption in his privacy or person. Sylvia freaked. The last place on earth she wanted to be was alone in a secluded rural setting with an out-of-control drug addict and juicer like Lou Reed toting a gun. Yet, since she hadn't yet extended her power in the extremely unbalanced relationship, she relented. Hoping, no doubt, that if push came to shove, the myopic Lou would shoot better than he could drive. For the most part, however, Lou entertained himself with inanimate objects over which he had some control. When not composing songs, he spent his time tinkering with his bike, shooting hoops, working out, trying the biofeedback therapy, meanwhile fulfilling Lou's fantasy of living with his college sweetheart, Sylvia, enrolled in writing classes at Sarah Lawrence College in a suburb north of New York City. Together they worked on video projects and took kung fu classes. Sylvia's brother was also a help, introducing Lu to Wu-style Tai Chi, Chung, or Chinese boxing, focusing on powerful Chinese system of exercise organized, refined, and handed down from master to master since the time of the Yellow Emperor, 2696 to 2598 B.C. It evolved from the Taoist search for a way to rejuvenate and heal the body to increase internal strength and energy. According to Master C.K. Chu, Tai Chi enables students to cultivate Qi, the intrinsic, intrinsic energy or life force of the body. The circulation of the Qi revitalizes the internal organs and all the biological system as an active meditation. Tai Chi promotes the integration of body, mind, and emotions. As a result, the student will find he or she is better able to deal with the internal contradictions and external stress. Lu found it to be a sport with a ritual of combat is as important as the outcome. It's an aesthetic and physical discipline that I find exquisite. The discipline is in the ability to relax. It's very beautiful to watch. Spending long weekends out of the city with Sylvia and his dogs, Reed had plenty of time to think for the first time since his Freeport exile. I really love it, he enthused. It smells great. 
Even if you wanted to do something, there's nothing here. It's appalling how much sleep I get. I'm a happy person, and I would hope somebody like me would be. You ought to be happy. I'm happy I'm walking around alive, which is not to say I'm happy about the state of my world. I'm just happy about my own personal situation. And from there, I look out. I've always thought of myself as a writer. I work in a rock and roll format because I really like rock and roll. And I really like playing the guitar. And it wouldn't and wouldn't it be great if I would could combine these three things I really like? I'm just trying to get off like everybody else and avoid working. If I can do something that I'd be doing anyway and not have to have a job, well, that to me is really getting through this world pretty well. And if I could have a wife too, my God, who could ask for anything more? By February 1980, Lou was back in New York making arrangements for his wedding to Sylvia. The event would herald the beginning of a new life for Lou. Then, just before the big day, the Sex Pistols Sid Vicious, awaiting trial for murdering his girlfriend, died of a heroin overdose. Asked by a British journalist if Sid had died for Lou's, Lou Reed's sins, the Pistols' Johnny Rotten replied, Yes, too many Lou Reed albums I blame it on. There was that horrible movement from New York to London, and they brought their dirty culture with them. Sid was so impressed by the decadence of it all. God, so dreary. Fuck, I was going to end there. Well, it's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I mean, there's a, that Lou Reed album, New York. Says, I hope it's true what my wife said to me. Uh, Sylvia, how do you call your lover man? Uh, I know he didn't end up with Sylvia, but um, <clears throat> who was it? Laurie Anderson was his last wife, and they lived in a house on Long Island, and she said that he did Tai Chi up until the moment that he died. Okay, well, it looks like I'm going to have to end this episode with a little Led Zeppelin. This is <clears throat> just because um, Sid Vicious' death, not a good way to end it. Okay, this is from... <clears throat> when Giants Walked the Earth, a biography of Led Zeppelin by Mick Wall. And this will be the last one for this episode. Uh, hey, I'm going to be in Philadelphia at the end of the month. I'm in, what, Glendale, Arizona this weekend. Then I'm in L.A. doing sets. And then at the end of the month, I'm in Philadelphia. Go to TomRhodes.net. You can see where I'm coming. I'm coming. I'll be near you soon. Anyway, uh, let me read you a little lullaby. This is um, When Giants Walked the Earth. <clears throat> okay. This is what? Physical Graffiti. Released on February 24th, 1975, in the middle of the band's 10th U.S. tour. A riotous two leg jaunt that would see them at their preening peak. Physical Graffiti was another chart topper in both Britain and the U.S., entering the ladder at number three in its first week of release, an unprecedented feat at the time. It also attracted the best set of reviews any of the band's albums had ever received. In the U.K., Melody Maker called it pure genius, while 
Let It Rock, boldly predicted that by the end of the year, physical graffiti will be beginning to exude as much of that nebulous greatness that clusters around the likes of Blonde on Blonde, Beggar's Banquet, and Revolver. In the U.S., Cream was no less effusive. Graffiti is, in fact, a better album than the other five offerings. The band being more confident, more arrogant, in fact, and more consistent. Equal time is given to the cosmic and the terrestrial, the subtle and the passionate. To compound the critical backslapping, it was also on the U.S. tour that Rolling Stone put Led Zeppelin on its cover for the first time, with an article by the new 15-year-old cub reporter Cameron Crowe. Guy went on to make Avatar. Untainted by having been amongst the clique of original Stone writers who had routinely trashed the band, Crow was clearly a real-life fan, and the band treated him to one of their most revealing interviews. Page even opened up about Bullskin House, dropping hints as to its hidden purpose by referring directly to my involvement in magic and explaining how I'm attracted by the unknown. All my houses are isolated. I spend a lot of time near the water. A few things have happened that would freak some people out, but I was surprised, actually, at how composed I was. How, he doubted, whether I'll reach 35. I can't be sure about that. But that he wasn't afraid of death. That is the greatest mystery of all. Ultimately, he whispered, I'm still searching for an angel with a broken wing then added with a grin, it's not very easy to find them these days, especially when you're staying at the Plaza Hotel. It was also at the Plaza Plaza in New York at the start of the tour that he set up a large stereo system to play back the music he had so far made for Lucifer Rising. I was on the sixth floor and there were complaints from the twelfth, he said at the time. There had already been two private screenings of the first 31 minutes of film at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and at Berkeley University in LA, where the reaction had been generally positive. And Anger now planned a full release by the end of the year, he said. Meanwhile, the tour got underway under something of a cloud when Page yet again injured a finger on his left hand, just days before its official start at the Minneapolis Sports Center on January 18th. It happened when I was on a train in England, on my way to rehearsal, he said. I must have grabbed at something, and the finger got caught in the hinge of the door. I was just totally numb, numb with shock. I just looked at it and said, oh no. The band ended up cutting dazed and confused and doing how many more times instead, while Paige soldiered on by self-administering codeine tablets mixed with Jack Daniel's whiskey to deaden the pain. It was now that Danny Goldberg pulled off his biggest PR coup yet when he arranged for William S. Burroughs to interview Page for a lengthy cover story in Crawdaddy under the heading The Jimmy and Bill Show. It may not have been Truman Capote writing about the Stones, but it was damn close. Better, in Jimmy's view, as Burroughs was another advocate of Crowley's sex magic, as famous for being a heroin addict as he was a writer of apocalyptic literature. 
Burroughs wrote of seeing one of the band's three shows at Madison Square Garden in February, describing the audience as a river of youth looking curiously like a single organism, one well-behaved, clean-looking middle-class kid, and compared the show itself to a bullfight. There was a palpable interchange of energy between the performers and the audience. He noted, leaving the concert hall was like getting off a jet plane. The article also discussed how a rock concert is in fact a rite involving the evocation and transmutation of energy. Rock stars may be compared to priests, and how the Zeppelin show bears some resemblance to the trance music found in Morocco, which is magical in its origin and purpose. That is, concerned with evocation and control of spiritual forces. Adding, it is to be remembered that the origin of all the arts, music, painting, and writing, is magical and evocative, and that the magic is always used to obtain some definite result. In the Led Zeppelin concert, the result aimed at would seem to be the creation of energy in the performers and in the audience. For such magic to succeed, it must tap the sources of magical energy, and this can be dangerous. The actual interview with Page conducted over two fingers of whiskey at Burroughs' Franklin Street Bunker, a converted boys' locker room in downtown New York, was less interesting, with Burroughs doing most of the talking, Jimmy simply adding the occasional wow and yeah. Though Burroughs noted they had friends in common, the real estate agent who negotiated Jimmy Page's purchase of the Alistair Crowley house on Loch Ness, Bolskin, John Michael, the flying saucer and pyramid expert, Donald Camel, who worked on performance, Kenneth Anger, and the Jaggers, Mick and Chris. <clears throat> Though Burroughs added, there are no incidents in the world of magic. I'm sorry. There are no accidents in the world of magic. Page, he concluded, was equally aware of the risks involved in handling the fissionable material of the mass conscious. I pointed out that the moment when the stairway to heaven became something actually possible for the audience would also be the moment of greatest danger. Jimmy expressed himself as well aware of the power in mass concentration aware of the dangers involved and of the risk and balance needed to avoid them, rather like driving a load of nitro nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin. <clears throat> there is a responsibility to the audience, Page agreed. We don't want to release anything we can't handle, he added. Music, which involves riffs anyway, will have a trance-like effect, and it's like a mantra. Another memorable meeting Page had during the band's stint in New York was with David Bowie, then also heavily involved in his own cocaine-fueled investigations into Crowley and the occult, introduced by Mick Jagger, in town planning the next Stones tour. Bowie was curious to know more about Page's work on, the, on Anger's film. Tony Zanata, then president of Bowie's management company, Main Man, later wrote in his book, Stardust, about how Crowley's belief encompassed promiscuity and their use of drugs like cocaine. It was another version of David's beloved Ziggy Stardust. 
Bowie was convinced that Page's study of Crowley had given him an especially strong aura, a magnetic sphere composed of three fields or bands of different colors that surrounds the body. He invited Page to the house he was then living on on 20th Street. Though he was his polite self, David was wary of Page, writes Zanata. Occasionally, during the evening, the conversation touched on the subject of the occult. Whenever the power of the guitarist's aura was mentioned, mentioned, Page remained silent but smiled inscrutably. It seemed that he did believe he had the power to control the universe. Wow, sounds like the devil owned every booger in his head. Eventually, Page's aura so rankled Bowie, he began to seriously lose his cool. I'd like you to leave, he snapped. Jimmy simply sat there, smiling, still saying nothing, pointing to an open window in the room. Bowie hissed through gritted teeth. Why don't you leave by the window? Again, Page merely sat there, smiling, saying nothing, staring right at Bowie as though speaking to him telepathically. Eventually, Jimmy got up and strode out, slamming the door behind him, leaving Bowie quaking in his boots. The next time they bumped into each other at a party, Bowie immediately left the room. Shortly after, claimed Zanata, Bowie insisted the house on 20th Street be exercised because of the belief it had been overrun with satanic demons whom Crowley's disciples had summoned straight from hell. Wow, what a fucking story. Okay. I have to wash my hands after that motherfucker. Hey, uh, I think that's it, man. We've uh, been running for a while. Uh, there's other biographies on the table. Johnny Cash, Muddy Waters, Tom Waits, Lightning Hopkins. Um, but uh, what do we got? Uh, Robert Mitchum, Sam Peckinpah, uh, Peter Sellers, uh, fucking James Cagney. Uh, there's, just, there's just too much to get to. We're going to have to do a biography roulette number two one day. So um, this is your old friend, Tom, thanking you for listening to Tom Rhodes Radio. Um, uh, and now we got to figure out which um, Led Zeppelin song to end this on. Um, uh, you know, the, the, this, uh, the, the story, <clears throat> Robert Plant had a car accident on the island of Rhodes in Greece, uh, and his kid, he was fucked up. And then it, uh, it scared the shit out of him that they were messing with the occult, or Jimmy Page was, and he blamed it on that accident. And then that's when like, kind of like um, Led Zeppelin fell apart after that. Their last album, um, Robert Plant recorded with a, a leg cast. Anyway, this could be all bullshit like the Danny Glover, Donald Glover thing that I'll have to <laughs> clarify on the next episode. But nonetheless... Uh, I hope you enjoyed this little reading session, and uh, I'm off to Phoenix tomorrow, baby. All right. Uh, when I'm breathless, I'll run till I drop. Yeah. Shalom, amigos. E. Amigas.